This is an ABC podcast. People in the Western world, if they think of Afghanistan at all, they see it as a dusty and dangerous place on the periphery of the world. But for thousands of years, Afghanistan has really been at the centre of the world. It's been the meeting place of empires, a lush, mountainous region that sits right at the heart of the world. Afghanistan is the place that connects Persia to India, that connects China to Europe. Luxury goods like silk and jade and porcelain came through Afghanistan, along with spices from Southeast Asia and India. Dukhani Ayubi came to Australia from Afghanistan as a little girl with her family back in the 1980s. She grew up with stories of the old country from her parents, but her most powerful sensory connection to Afghanistan developed in her mother's kitchen in their Adelaide home. Some years ago, Dukhani's family started a restaurant in Adelaide called Pawana, serving traditional Afghan food with its rich spices and colours in the context of traditional Afghan hospitality. Dukhani's now written a really beautiful book, a collection of recipes, stories and history called Pawana, which I think means butterfly in Afghan. Hi, Dukhani. Have I got that right? Hi, Richard. Yes, Pawana means butterfly. I made one of your dishes on the weekend for my family, Dukhani. I made something called Kariyi Gosfan, which is lamb with chilli and yogurts and uh, that char masala mix of spice with coriander on top. And, you know, for <laughs> once, for once, my family said nice things about my cooking. <laughs> Isn't that nice? Isn't that nice that's when amazing. you can do that? Yes. <laughs> oh, that that's one? very lovely. <laughs> uh, we had all the spices already. This is what was so mm. interesting, I think. I was going through the list of spices required with, with my wife, and she went, yes. we've got it, we've got it, we've got it, we've got it. We had all the spices required because my wife, her traditional cooking style is Singaporean, and there's so much overlap between the spices of that kind of cooking mm-hmm. and Afghani food. What does that tell you? about the reach of how far Afghani food extends out into the world that it has all this overlap with Southeast Asia. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're alluding to something that was really at the crux, at the heart of what I wanted to capture in our recipe book. The history of Afghanistan manifests in its food. Afghan food is just so emblematic of the interconnection that defines the human story, the great exchanges that have happened over thousands of years that really in so many unrelenting ways define who we are today. Afghanistan sits at the centre of Central Asia, at the heart of the ancient Silk Road, and they were trade networks that connected the world from east to west and north to south. And so, so much of what is captured in Afghan cuisine seems really familiar to people no matter where they're from. And I think that's a really beautiful part of Afghan cuisine. How much of your childhood memories, just looking back, what pictures you have in your head, Dukhani, are around Mm. cooking and food? So much of my childhood is connected to and revolves around food. And I think for my family, you know, as displaced people, you kind of come over into this new environment and you don't really have too much else other than each other and memories of your ancestral lands and your connections to your history that you can evoke. And food is a really central part to those memories and expression of those memories. So for us growing up, you know, some of my earliest memories are 
preparing the mantu, the dumplings, with my mum, or rolling out the dough to make balani, which is the stuffed flatbreads with my sisters. And it was a really huge part of forming my identity and really seeded in me the love for food that um, is a very big part of my life today. What would it look like in the family kitchen? Is there a hierarchy at work there? <laughs> well, when we were little, probably. <laughs> there were four of us and, you know, we were all kind of within a few years of each other. So it was probably like, don't play with the flour or put that down or whatever. But as we grew up, Afghan culture, especially, you know, within your family, with, with my mum, you know, it was never really about a hierarchy. It's so dispersive. And I think for my mum, what she wanted for us was to have a connection to our history. So obviously her and my dad, you know, moving over as adults, they would have these very live, this very live connection to Afghanistan and to the memories and to the culture and identity that formed us. But as kids, you know, we all moved over when we were all under the age of 10 and I was just one, you know, so there was really no connection other than what was cultivated within the family. So for my mum, just raising us around our cuisine, and having us all make that together was a really important part of that preservation of our history. It's only in recent years, Dakani, I've come to realise how wrong all the stories I'd heard about the Middle Ages were. It's seen as a time when culture sort of went dark in the, in, in the mm. world, but it kind of just went dark in Western Europe. In this time, you have all this culture going on and trade and exchange of ideas and goods mm -hmm. that run all the way between Byzantium and China with you know, mm. India, Mongolia, Afghanistan, Persia, Arabia, mm -hmm in between. This is a kind of a really vibrant era, really. Were you aware of that growing up? I think yes and no. I think I always knew in some way that my history was much larger than all the signals around me growing up in Australia. And there were kind of hints of the ancient glory of that part of the world. Um, and for me in my life, that manifested as kind of really old texts in um, ancient Farsi that my mum would read, really old poetry, really beautiful artwork that was in the books that my mum had, that kind of thing. And yeah, it definitely took me becoming an adult and trying to unpick all of the blockages that stopped me from accessing that kind of history to really weave together the extent to which Afghanistan has been touched by yeah, ancient empires like the Persian Achaemenid Empire with Cyrus the Great and then the Zoroastrianism, which basically is the precursor for Abrahamic faiths. You know, a lot of the ideas of those faiths were seeded in Zoroastrianism. It was the first monotheistic religion that was based on this idea of light and dark and, and all that comes with it. All of those things were born and evolved in ancient Afghanistan. The Zoroastrians have a name for the, the, the god, the single god who creates the world, which is Ahura Mazda. That's Isn't, right. That's where the, the Mazda car company gets its name from <laughs> I know. in Japan. And who would know For some that? reason. <laughs> I know. It's just the oddest thing. They went, oh, yeah, we'll name it after a Zoroastrian god. And I'm not, yeah. I'm not even kidding. That's actually what they did. They said, we're going to Absolutely. name it after a, a Zoroastrian god. Yes. I mean, it's this religion now that seems so obscure. I mean, it's still practiced in some parts of the world, in Iran and in um, India, but most of us would be oblivious to the immense weight that Zoroastrianism has had on our identities today. The area has hosted 
Zoroastrian fire temples, Vedic mm-hmm. shrines, mm-hmm. Buddhist temples, Christian churches, Islamic mm-hmm. mosques. Mm-hmm. Alexander the Great came through there. Are there still yes. traces of the ancient Greek world in Afghanistan today, Durkani? Uh, yeah, well, some of it was unearthed, ex- excavated relatively recently in the 70s. It's amazing when you think about it. A Greek kind of settlement furthest from Athens was found in what is today Afghanistan at a site called Echonom. And it was complete with a citadel, a gymnasium, (laughs) a typical Greek city, Acropolis, everything found in Afghanistan. Coins have been found with um, ancient Greek text, but the faces of the gods of people who came centuries later. You know, so it was this real marbling of ancient cultures. Um, the Greeks, after Alexander the Great passed, stayed for another two centuries and really made their mark on the culture of the region. And these are things that even I, as I was researching and reading and kind of following up leads, hints of things I'd always known, I was amazed at the depth of the intermixing of the cultures. It reminds me of Southeast Asia in so far as that a lot of empires have come through the place and when they mm. do, the local people go, we're, we're going to keep this bit of your cooking. Yes. <laughs> um, we might be glad to see the end of you, but uh, we're going <laughs> to yes. keep this, this aspect of your cooking. Exactly. They all brought different, different ingredients. Mm. The Indian civilization. what kind of ingredients did the Indian empires of the past bring to Afghanistan? Yes, alongside the philosophical ideas that pass through, which you already mentioned, like the Buddhism, the Zoroastrianism, that kind of thing, there was a great exchange of ingredients. And from India, the influence that comes through in Afghan food is definitely the spices, the cardamom, the cinnamon, the saffron, the cumin, that kind of thing in our food. And also things like the dals, the chana dal, which features in, not just in a dal dish, not just in a lentil dish, but features a lot in our sauces and in our rice dishes, that kind of thing. The spices that go into Afghan food, they really evoke what might be typically associated with the more well-known Indian cuisine. But this is the thing I mentioned about Afghan food being so familiar, but also so different because of the portions we use and the way we use the different spices. It ends up being quite a different dish altogether. Afghan cuisine ends up being quite fragrant. How about the the Persian empires of the past, from the Parthians to the Sassanids to, to, to whatever else? What kind of ingredients have they brought to Afghan food? I found it kind of difficult to find really concrete traces of some of these exchanges of ingredients. But you do see a lot of similarities between Persian cuisine today and Afghan food. And a lot of the greens and things like the coriander and the mint and the parsley herbs that we use a lot in our food, I've kind of found references to that kind of having come over through Persia as well. But today, the cuisine of Persia, well, Iran and Afghanistan is almost identical in name and in ingredients that are used. But because, again, of the way ingredients are portioned and, and prepared, they end up being slightly different too. The thing that really blew my mind was the, the presence of really Chinese things in Afghan food, like yes. dumplings and, and hand-rolled noodles. Yes, yes, absolutely. Another ancient civilization that has made its mark in Afghanistan and on Afghan cuisine is... Genghis Khan from Mongolia, obviously fierce nomadic warlords. <laughs> no, fierce is a slight understatement, I think it's fair to say. <laughs> yes. yes, but one thing they did leave behind was noodles <laughs> and right. dumplings. 
And yeah, people are surprised. We've got dumplings like mantu, which is like a direct variation of words like mandu and manti that you find all throughout the region that has kind of filtered down into Afghanistan. And it's a very significant part of Afghan cuisine today. How about the Ottoman Turks? The Turkish influence is definitely present in Afghanistan. When Afghanistan was emerging as more of a nation state with a bit more of an identity that we know today as Afghanistan, a lot of those leaders were either Turko-Mongol or Turkish slaves, basically, that found some form of freedom in Afghanistan. And I guess the influence that came from there would be the real kind of syrupy desserts with lots of nuts, that kind of thing, um, filtered over from the east into Afghanistan. What kind of produce does Afghanistan itself bring to this incredible collision Mm. of food cultural traditions? Afghanistan has such a varied topography that there's lots of native ingredients um, in our cuisine. My grandfather, my maternal grandfather, he was a lover of planting his own food and growing things in his own garden. And so there were things like uh, lots of vegetables, like native leeks, lots of kind of potatoes, turnips, that kind of thing that are used, featured heavily in Afghan food, and lots of fruits, apples, pears, all sorts of things, and pistachios, lots of nuts as well groves of almond trees, apple trees, pistachios, that kind of thing. And, you know, those were things that my grandfather loved and really tended to. I heard stories from my mum about how these places were irrigated using, you know, fresh mountain water that streams down from the Hindu Kush mountains. And of course, rice. Afghanistan was a huge producer of rice, And my grandfather had his own rice fields um, where they would prepare really special types of rice grains. So when this delicious and spicy and quite beautifully colourful food is finally prepared and it's brought Mm. to the table, how do you serve it? Do you serve it individually or, or is it communally in the middle of the table? Afghan food is all about communal preparation and communal eating. And one of the glories, I think, of sitting down for an Afghan meal is that an Afghan meal is not just one dish. It's a spread of dishes. (laughs) So, you know, you would have your rice dishes at the centre with their beautiful toppings of like sultanas, carrots and nuts on top of the rice. And then all around it, you would have some of the curries, the vegetable curries, the meats, the meat dishes, the kebabs, like the one you prepared. And you would always have naans and chutneys and things on the side as well to have with the food. So really, a meal is just kind of taking lots of portions of different dishes and putting it onto a plate and letting the flavours blend together and sing. There's a fair bit of Persian and Afghan poetry in your book. Who gave you that love? Well, as it turns out, my grandma, my mum's mum, was a poet. Um, She was born in 1918 and she passed away relatively young, about 42 years old. And a lot of her poetry was about the emancipation of Afghan women. And so she just wrote all this, wrote it all in our native Pashto and um, some in Dari. Uh, And when she passed away, she was recognised by the Afghan literary circles as one of the most important poets in Afghanistan. And she still kind of has tributes and her poetry printed in kind of annual um, magazines of Afghan literature. And so I was uncovering all of this and I realised how much language, literature, poetry, philosophy is a part of my blood. And I realised for me, growing up as a migrant in Australia, 
for me, that kind of language and access to being able to think in a way that drives past, flies over the normal boundaries that are set up by society, it's really an emancipatory feeling. Yeah, as an adult, when you realise it connects you to your history and to the genetic memory that's formed you, it becomes even more powerful. Do you know how the ancient Romans saw your part of the world, that part of the world, back in the day in ancient Rome? They thought your part of the world, you just had too much money and luxury. And they, <laughs> they, they thought of themselves as like robust, tough, solid, serious farmers. And there were you over in the Eastern world, eating honey, drinking <laughs> wine, wearing silk, eating all this That's lovely right. food. So much of that poetry does seem to speak of a love of essential pleasure, of the, of the life of the senses, of enjoying food. Yes, and I think you raised something really almost paradoxical in the world today. People would probably not associate that with um, Afghanistan and Central Asia. But, you know, there were places there, like you mentioned, they were beacons. They were the centre of knowledge. They were the centre of architectural development. They were also the centre of enjoyment and worldly kind and a love for worldly pleasures. A lot of the kind of kings of Afghanistan, um, even as late as in the Mongol Empire, uh, sorry, the Mughal Empire with Babur, you know, he wrote an account, a first-hand account of his life. And there are so many scenes that um, inspired a lot of the Persian miniatures. And if you look at them, it's all about opulence and silks and wild exotic animals and and food piled high and wines being drunk. So, yeah, it's definitely that opulence is a huge part of our um, culture and it does show in the food because it looks quite aesthetically beautiful and artistic, the way the ingredients kind of blend together and are presented. Tell me about the feast of Nowruz. I hope I'm saying that right there. Um, so Nowruz is a feast that predates kind of the Islamic influence in the region, which started in about the 800s. So it harks back to the Zoroastrian era. So Nowruz is a really special and kind of monumental part of the calendar in Iran and Afghanistan and in a few of the other kind of Central Asian countries. And as part of the Zoroastrian belief system, the new year is celebrated at the time of the spring equinox. So it's a time of new life. And then every dish connects to this concept of new life, either in colour. So there's a lot of green dishes or with the letter that they start with, the letter sin, which I guess would translate to an S. So things like sabzi, which is the spinach, for example, um, and the ingredients that you use um, are tied into that concept of renewal. You all sit around this soft which is laid out on the floor and then there are usually like soft mattresses that kind of border the sofra where all the food is placed and then you just take you know bits from the spread onto your own plate and you eat. The 19th century was a time when the British Empire, the Russian Empire and the Persians all saw Afghanistan as playing a crucial role in their imperial ambitions. How did Afghanistan get caught up in all that, Dukhani? Yeah, so in the 1800s, Afghanistan became influenced by Britain's growing concerns around the rise of Russia. So Russia was kind of becoming this formidable um, superpower, I guess. And Britain, because of all of its interests in India and Persia, was really worried about that. And Afghanistan, as the gateway into India and sharing a border with Persia, became embroiled in this kind of struggle for power. 
And around the same time, the concept of Afghanistan as we know it today was united by a leader, Ahmad Shah Durrani. And he was really the first one that managed to get together all these disparate groups of ethno-linguistic tribes and have them rally together under one banner. So that's when Afghanistan's sense of nationhood developed. And then later on in the 1890s, the borders that we see around Afghanistan today were drawn. It was drawn by a British uh, lord, Mortimer Durand, who was, I think, the convoy to the British East India Company. And they came to some sort of an agreement with Russia so that they could divide up um, what parts of Afghanistan best met their needs. Uh, so, yeah, the boundaries that you see around Afghanistan today are a result of that agreement in the 1890s. And yet it was also around this time that Afghanistan came to be known as the graveyard of empires as well. That's right, because by that point, the British had had lots of failed, <laughs> disastrous expeditions in Afghanistan. And yeah, that same kind of rebuff and retaliation against uh, foreign presence carried on in Afghanistan right through to the Soviet occupation of Afghanistan later on in the 1970s and 80s. You can call Afghanistan a graveyard of empires, but you can also call it a birthplace of civilization mm. and a birthplace of empires. And I think it's really important that we begin to see uh, our histories and ourselves beyond just these kind of blinkered slithers of time. Your mum was born during the reign of the last king of Afghanistan, mm -hmm. Zahir Shah. Mm -hmm. What state was the country in at that time, in those post-war, well, post-World War II years? Well, it was almost a time of when you speak to people who grew up in Afghanistan, who were adults in Afghanistan at that time, they refer to it as like a golden era, a spiritual flourishing. When I spoke to my mum about it, you know, her memories are of peace and stability and hope, you know, and they had, they had options and they had dreamed up futures, you know, and my mum says that her childhood was a time where there were like picnics at the foot of the Hindu Kush mountains and these little day trips away with family and all these feasts, you know, they were a really big part of, of her childhood memories. And when I was doing a lot of reading, I, I tried to find some primary sources about what it might have been like at that time. Um, and as it happened, I found writing from my mother's cousin, who was a, a philosopher, a, a writer, an academic, and he wrote about the loss of that era because of the eventual creeping in of um, communism. And one of the papers that he wrote was called Afghan Intellectuals in Exile, Philosophical and Spiritual Dimensions. So, you know, it wasn't that there was nothing that was lost. There was a richness that was lost. There was a cultural flourishing at that time. The 1964 constitution of Afghanistan was drawn up to reform Afghanistan in line with its own traditional principles, but also bringing in the influence of the outside world. So it didn't want to be this shut off place. It wanted to evolve um, on its own terms, with its own history. So that was the Afghanistan your mum grew up in. Then your mum met your dad and they got married. Dukani, what do you know about their wedding in Afghanistan? 
I know that it was at a place called um, Barbala, which was an old summer palace of one of the kings. Um, and they got it had married been... in a palace of the kings? <laughs> wow. By the time they got married, it had been um, kind of transformed into this reception centre. So people from that part of society, they would get married there. And Afghans make a feast of everything, even if there's people coming around for dinner. So I can only imagine what a wedding feast would have looked like. Then we have to get into the dark years of Afghanistan's history, the mm. beginning of the dark years. Mm. It was a coup d'etat. The king was ejected by his cousin with Communist Party support. Mm-hmm. Uh, things started to go off the rails at that point. People are disappearing. Political prisoners are being taken. Then there's another coup. And then there's a Soviet invasion. The Soviet mm-hmm. Union invades in 1979. Now, mm-hmm. it's often forgotten, Dukhani, but... I remember this. I was a kid Mm. at the time, but I do remember that was the event that made the Cold War flare up again. It was the invasion of of Afghanistan by the Soviet Union that made the United States and its allies think that there had to be a pushback. Mm -hmm. And suddenly Cold War tensions were at an all-time high. It seems to me, you know, when you've taken all these things that, again... Afghanistan seems to be this tipping point place where where <laughs> world history turns mm. again and again. Yeah, absolutely. The introduction of communism in Afghanistan is something that seems so foreign to almost every other part of its history. I think why communism was for 10 years so fiercely rejected by Afghans was because it was asking them to depart significantly from their own spiritual essence. The principles of faith and kinship and tribal affiliations, the communist leaders were asking Afghans to reject it all and to modernise in ways that were too quick and too alien to Afghan people. Podcast and broadcast. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. So, Dukhani, you were born in Afghanistan after the Soviet invasion. What was the situation like for your family in Afghanistan by the time you were born? Well, by the time I was born, so it was in the mid-80s, and this really was the height, well, starting to become probably the darkest years um, in Afghanistan with the um, Soviet occupation. And it was around this time that people were kind of starting to disappear. It had probably been happening for years before as well, but it was a tipping point for my mum because she realised that things weren't going to get better. And, you know, so people are being disappeared and you just found no trace of them. Mass killings had happened by this point. The situation was just so precarious. And for my dad, you know, his life was in direct danger. So what was asked of ordinary Afghan people was to state their affiliations with the communist regime. And if you refuse to do that, or if you refuse to oblige requests for bribes or any form of corruption, you were blacklisted. And that meant your life was in danger. Uh, And that's exactly what happened to my dad when he kind of refused to take orders from um, a communist leader where he was working. And he got news on the grapevine that his life was in danger and he needed to leave. So it was a time of great uncertainty and depravity for Afghan people. And that's when my family made the decision to take that risk of leaving Afghanistan, which within itself was a risk that could mean life, it could mean death. 
What was the plan of escape? My dad had to organise for these kind of falsified papers because nobody was really allowed out of the country legitimately. So the way we were leaving the country was through um, the Khyber Pass into Pakistan, um, so at the border between Afghanistan and Pakistan. And we had to do that separately. So men were always stopped and questioned much more than, um, say, kids or women. So dad was like, told us we go ahead um, and we meet him in Jalalabad, which is closer to the border. So we leave from Kabul to Jalalabad and, and we make it. And then dad gets held up because it took him a while to find someone willing to take the risk to drive him over because it would have been a time where there were lots of security checkpoints and lots of kind of stops and searches, that kind of thing. So when my dad finally did meet with us, we had these papers that said we were crossing over to Pakistan to attend a wedding of a relative. And because he was a day late, he had to fudge the date, had to find a way to make it look like the wedding was still the next day and that we were going to make it in time. And so we get to the border official and my dad handed over this kind of crumpled up paper with a fudged number for the date. And the official took a look at my dad and said, I think you've missed the wedding. And my dad says that his knees just go weak. And he says, no, you know, we haven't missed the wedding. It's tomorrow. Like, we've got time. We're going to make it. And the border official just says to my dad, look, I know you've tampered with these papers. I know there's no wedding, but go, take your family, go. Don't come back, don't look back, and God help you. And so that was just one instance of how, against many odds, um, my family made it across into Pakistan. That decision by that border guard, your whole life is in that moment. That's right, yeah. It's only when us speaking to my parents about this and asking them for an account by blow by blow, I realised just how terrifying it would have been for them as adults. We were oblivious as kids. So then you were across the border in Pakistan. Do you have any memories of that time or were you just too little? I was too small. So I was not even one year old. But You know, it's the beginning of my life and I guess those are those formative things that have been imprinted in me. I asked my mum so many questions about what this time was like and when I first asked her about it, I was like, mum, you know, what was it like when we crossed the border, you've given up everything you've known, all familiarity, all certainty, you've lost everything and we're in this refugee camp, you know, living in a tent. What was that like for you? And I expected my mum to say, oh, it's terrible and, you know, the most terrifying thing ever. And she actually said, I could smell the scent of heaven there because there was safety. And we'd kind of escaped this direct threat. And that made me think about that whole process and where we ended up really differently too. This is an interesting word to use, the scent of heaven. So Mm. what is heaven then for your mum? My mum is a religious and spiritual person. So for her, I think when she uses it in the context of of describing this escape, heaven is your dignity, it's your safety, it's the protection of your family and your children, you know, and it's it's the chance to hope. That's what she felt she'd gained by leaving behind a country that was now being distorted way out of anything they had known. 
You know, this is also tragic. People like your family are the very people that Afghanistan needs. Was there a profound sense amongst your family of they'd lost their country to the men of violence? Yes, you know, and if you ask my mum or my dad today, the Afghanistan that has kind of evolved now is unrecognisable to the Afghanistan that they grew up in. It's a really foreign and alien place to them, and I think that is a bit of a tragedy, really. Was the camp nonetheless a dangerous place for your father? Yes, it was. One of the things that happened after the decade plus of the communist regime in Afghanistan was this really fundamental version of Islam was starting to creep up on people. And it was almost like a knee-jerk response to being told that you shouldn't have any religious beliefs or any faith anymore. Of course, the response was this conflated sense of fundamental um, religious ideology. And it started relatively benignly as a grassroots movement with the Mujahideen. But by the late 80s, it had transformed into a really dangerous ideology and precursor to the Taliban and and everything we, we know now comes with that. So... When we were in Pakistan in the camps, this is where a lot of the Islamist leaders were staying as well because they couldn't operate within Afghanistan while it was still a communist regime. And so it was a really dangerous place. And this was the police was a place that a lot of people were drafted into eventually taking on this fundamental version of Islam. And so for my family, who, like I mentioned, this version of Islam was totally alien that meant danger too. So if you didn't kind of adhere to really fanatical versions of Islam and have these fanatical beliefs, you were considered a traitor and a communist. (laughs) So, uh, (laughs) yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) A rock and a hard place, really. And so because my father wouldn't kind of adhere to these things, we were at threat again and there was another threat made to his life. And we were just really fortunate that around the same time, my father met an old family friend who'd been kind of, we'd, we, our families had known each other for generations. And his daughter, Dr. Nuria Salihi, was already living in um, Melbourne, Australia. And my dad ran into him in Pakistan, like in, the, in these places where refugees live. And he was just days from kind of flying out to Australia himself. And he said, write down your name, your wife's name, all your children's names and date of birth. And I'm going to pass this on to Nuria to start the paperwork, to have you sponsored over on a humanitarian visa. So that was just another stroke of luck. And my aunt Nuria, she sponsored my family over as she sponsored lots of other Afghan families. She was working at the Royal Melbourne Hospital as a um, physicist. And she is a really kind of honourable woman who helped a lot of Afghan families leave Afghanistan. And she was awarded the Order of Australia Medal in um, the 90s for all her work as well. So we were just really lucky to have that interaction again and to eventually be accepted over to Australia. So you went to Melbourne for a couple of years and then came came to Adelaide. How was it for your folks to be delivered from wartime Afghanistan to a place where the most terrifying thing that goes on is the Clipsal 500, essentially. (laughs) I mean, is that like, I just wonder if there's that feeling, although you're severed from the the old country, Mm. there's at least there's safety in a place like Australia? uh, Yeah, absolutely. You know, when 
you speak to my mum or dad about it, the first thing they say is they love Australia for that safety that it kind of wrapped them up in. You know, so much of life had been overthrown, so much had been turned upside down. And then we get to Australia and there's peace and it's all around them. And that gratitude is really imprinted uh, in them, definitely. Podcast, broadcast, and online. You're listening to Conversations with Richard Feidler. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. So after a while, your family set up the restaurant Pawana. What do people see when they walk into that restaurant? When you walk into Pawana, you'll usually always see my dad because he's there every night as front of house and um, he loves being there and kind of meeting, greeting and speaking to people. But in terms of the ambience, when you walk in, there's lots of tiles, lots of a patterned floor, walls that are painted and textured in really warm colours, lots of different photos, old family photos hanging on the wall, kind of paying homage to the people of Afghanistan that have been lost and family members and, and that kind of thing. Well, every time I walk in, I feel like I'm wrapped in a bit of a warm embrace. So it's not really a commercial space, if that makes sense. I'm not sure you'd walk in and think you were going into a restaurant. It feels much more like you're in someone's home. Have you been back to Afghanistan since you arrived? Yes, the first time I went back since my family left was in 2012 and I went back with my sisters, some nieces and brother-in-law and that kind of thing. So there was a few of us going back over and really it was one of the most profound and shifting experiences for me. Why? Because I realised how much of it I didn't, how much of it I didn't realise was different to everything I'd seen in the media. And I'm almost ashamed to say it because, you know, I was born there and I have this direct connection to it. But such is the power of dominant narratives. You know, I expected to see desolation and a dry desert. And I got there and I was greeted by Hindu Kush mountains and lavish green rolling valleys and some of the most, well, some of the most beautiful places I've, I've visited to date. And the other thing that was really profound about Afghanistan was the connection I felt that I wasn't expecting. You know, we left when I wasn't even one. Um, and I'd spent so much of my life just being, you know, figuring out <laughs> how to grow up between two cultures in Australia um, that I wasn't expecting this really kind of deep connection to Afghanistan. But as soon as I got there, I was just overwhelmed with tears. It was like, well, I had been there before I was born there, but it's like I'd never left. It was a homecoming that I didn't expect. You've given a lot of thought to identity and what your identity might be as a displaced person in Australia, as someone who's grown up pretty much only knowing Australia, though, nonetheless mm. being wedded to this strong cultural tradition. And maybe I'm just guessing, did you grow up with a sense of nostalgia for a place you'd never been to? Yeah, 
Absolutely. And the only time I realized I had that nostalgia was when I was in places and I felt comfortable and like I belonged. And it was only then that I realized how much of my life I kind of, I haven't had that really natural fit that, that other people might have because of a connection to land or because of, you know, just generational memories on land. And you know, for somebody who grows up in a different country as a child, my experience of displacement was very different to my parents. You know, they had a measure and context of everything, you know, everything that was lost, but they also had like these sweet memories and these kind of really formative memories in connection with their own history and, and their ancestry. And, you know, as the children of migrants, you know, where you spend nearly your whole life in a different place, you don't have that same tether. You don't really know what's been lost or what's come before you, apart from kind of stories that you've heard. And so you have this really different experience and everything kind of tends towards question of ident- questions of identity. And some of them are really challenging and confronting and kind of anxiety um, creating. But then as you grow up and you also kind of see that as a gift, because for me, looking back now, you know, thinking about it, writing about it, I've realized that because of those different kind of disparate cultures that I was kind of raised with, but never really a part of either completely, I got to crystallize myself on my own terms and take on parts of identity that were deeper than any kind of externalities of nationhood or, um, or that kind of thing. So later in life, you realize it's a gift. A lot of people in that situation often feel torn between the two cultures. Is it this or is it that? And I have mm. a friend of mine who's, who was like that. Mm. And we had this conversation about being torn between the old country, which he visited quite a bit and loved, and Australia, which, of course, he also loved as well. It's where his family is. Mm. I said, why do you have to choose, man? <laughs> what, do, do you have to choose? You don't have That's to choose. Right. I mean, there's, there's every, kind of, every kind of ideology and identity wants to claim you, uh, your sole allegiance, but do you have to obey that? I mean, what do you think about all that, Zirconi? I think that you don't have to split yourself up. I think that any individual can only ever be themselves. Um, and if that means a bricolage of different influences, then you claim each of them 100%. So I don't have to be half Western, half Eastern. I'm both 100%. And, you know, with that, I think that's the essence of creativity. That's how you make new and you adapt and you survive. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of where I've placed it. But it definitely has its challenges and those challenges rear their head your whole life. But you eventually, hopefully, kind of gather the wisdom you need and the courage you need to ground yourself and negotiate those things as well as you can. You went to uni, did a degree. I believe you have an honours degree in chemistry and you're running Pawana at the moment. So my wife always says to me, she always says to me, Richard, she always talks to me like that. She goes, Richard, yes. <laughs> she was saying that cooking is just edible chemistry. It's just, a, it's exactly <laughs> the same thing. I think your wife's right. It's funny. Yeah. Now I look back, I'm like, some of my, my chemistry experiments were some of the best. They worked out. I got my <laughs> measurements right. You know, I was a cook in training. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't know it. <laughs> and now, yeah, yeah. It's like, you know, cooking is like chemistry that smells good as opposed yes. to chemistry, which is, you know, just, which stinks a lot of the time. That's right. right. And is really so dangerous why wouldn't you take a lot of cooking? the time. Yeah, and it's dangerous. That's right. Yes, <laughs> that's exactly it. Um, but you, you've got a kind of interesting new role now. You've got a fellowship with the um, prestigious Atlantic Institute in New York. Mm. What's your role mm. with that? Well, I have had this really fortunate experience of 
being ushered into that fellowship, which has been very formative for the past few years of my life. I was invited to join um, at a local level because um, the fellowship kind of operates in this way where fellows are recruited or apply in all different parts of the world, so seven different hubs that span the world. And after a year of kind of this experience at a local level, you go on to this fellowship that is global. And it's just been (laughs) truly extraordinary. So I was invited by a professor at Melbourne University because I was on the board there for the Melbourne Social Equity Institute. And she said, Kane, there's this Professor Bernadette McSherry. And she said to Kane, there's this fellowship. Um, it's predominantly about Indigenous issues and looking at inequity through an Indigenous lens. But I think you should go for it because it was also kind of at that stage looking at um, the experience of people who are marginalised, whether that's migrants or refugees or Indigenous people. And so I applied and um, luckily I got in and then it, the rest was just has been this amazing experience of meeting with people from all over the world who are looking at issues of social inequity through their own lens, whether it's the Black Lives Matter founders looking at racial inequity in America or people kind of still grappling with issues of apartheid in South Africa or Maori um, New Zealanders and their experiences of colonisation, Indigenous Australians. I've just had this profound experience of being with people who are trying to see and trying to grapple with inequity and and how it can kind of be addressed in in different ways. Dakani, it is interesting. You do tend to go from, you know, some kind of discussion, international discussion about displacement of, uh, of various peoples from around the globe and poverty and mm. the like, then to turning around to saying, oh, my God, you absolutely need to put more chopped chilli on that plate. Uh, <laughs> is, is, is there an overlap? Is this all part mm. of the same work in your mind? Yes, definitely. And I say that so kind of resolvedly because if I didn't give up certain things to take the risk to follow my heart lines, which for me meant coming back to Adelaide from a career in Melbourne and stay close to all that I knew, which was my family and food and my history. And if I didn't work to really engage with that in a level that was unmasked and deep, I don't think I would have the wherewithal, the capacity, the thoughts, the thinking even to be in those spaces. And so for me, food is a conduit to, in my life as it's played out, food is a conduit to these questions of culture and identity and who owns culture and identity and who owns narratives. Um, And that just segues for me in my mind really seamlessly into questions of imperialism and social justice and human dignity. It's been great to speak with you. What an extraordinary story. So lovely to chat with you today, Dakani. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me, Richard. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.